About 15 years ago, Luke Van Sistine and I were on a special trip. We were taking uh, some of our teenage young men uh, from the community here up to the Boundary Waters uh, to go camping. And uh, it was a very memorable experience uh, for multiple reasons, including that one of the young men, someone, probably some of you sitting in the back would recall quite well, uh, kind of the, the camping got to him. And we had just completed about a mile-long portage, you know, when you got the canoe on your back and you got the pack, the 60-pound pack, and, you know, these 14, 15, 16-year-old city kids, myself included, not 14 to 16 at the time, but we're struggling through sopping wet boots and all this. I'll never forget this young man gets into the water, and he just, for whatever reason, he just snaps. And he just shoves the canoe out to sea. And... We had other canoes. We went and got it. And, and I just remember, we was kind of looking at him and saying, how do you think we're getting out of here? <laughs> we kind of need that one. Well, it was quite the experience for a whole variety of reasons. But one thing I will never forget about that trip 15 years ago is I don't think I had ever seen the stars until I was up in the Boundary Waters. One night, we just went, and we had a couple guides. It was a Christian ministry that was doing this, and we had some wonderful times together. And we just lay out under the stars in the summer and looked up and talked about the stars and talked about God's creation and reflected on the beauty. You cannot see stars until you get someplace where it is very, very dark concept of light pollution where we live here in the city area in an urban area you see the stars but you don't really see them and I just want you to reflect on that for just a moment light is brightest when it is surrounded by the greatest darkness when there's a backdrop of blackness total darkness the light shines brightest and that's the point I want to start with this morning because we are now in the narrative of the blackest night of the human condition. The sinless Son of God came to earth. He did so in the humblest possible circumstance, the way in which ordinarily we would expect He would be most likely to be received. He came like one of us, not holier than thou, not, not too big for his britches, if you will, not walking around putting on airs better than the rest of us. No, he came to live humbly just like us. He came only to serve other people. And he spent his entire ministry serving and healing and meeting the needs of others. And what did we do in the face of that example? We subjected him to the most cruel death that humanity has ever created. We did that. And I fear to say that if you and I had been in Jerusalem that day, we probably would have been doing the exact same thing, or at least participating in our own way. This was the blackest night of humanity when the sinless Son of God was tortured, mocked, and ultimately murdered. 
But what I want to suggest tonight is that what Mark is doing is that he is picturing for us this blackest of black, dark uh, backdrops. He is painting it in just very, very dark colors. But all the while, he is just opening up a window to say, do you see that star? Do you see that light? Do you see that picture of what is coming through this dark scene, the brilliance of light that God is intending us to see in this story? It is against the backdrop of this dark night of humanity that the glorious majesty of our Savior, King Jesus, will shine, I pray, for all of us this morning. The title of the message this morning is Mockery and Majesty at the Cross. Mockery and Majesty at the Cross. And I want us to, to contrast together the darkness of what happened here at the cross with the brightness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that shines through these verses. Now, perhaps when Kelvin Todd read these passages for this passage for you this morning, you said, wait a second, he read 17 verses. Pastor Peter can't possibly get through 17 verses in one sermon. Watch me! Watch me! You say, I usually, you struggle to get through one verse in a sermon. Just wait. We're going to get through it together. So let's put our thinking caps on. Let's screw our focus in together. And let's look at this passage together. Let's start, first of all, with what I'm going to call the mockery. The mockery. It is mockery at the cross. It is, ma- it is majesty at the cross. Look at mockery. First of all, start in verse 16. Now, the context here, remember... Jesus has been arrested in the middle of the night. He has been taken to an illegal midnight hearing. He has been dragged in before at least some portion of the Jewish Supreme Court, their Sanhedrin, their, their, their chief leaders of their people. And they begin questioning him and bringing in false witnesses and trying to make an, a false accusation stick against him to give him a capital sentence, a sentence of death. And none of these charges are sticking. So finally they just ask him straight up, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus responds. And he says, yes. And he says, you're going to see this Son of Man coming in the glory of his Father. An amazing revelation of who Jesus is and who he knew himself to be. And of course, that is enough. We have our charge now. We have our guilty verdict. He is guilty by his own words. And then in the morning, only several hours later, they reconvene in order to give a show of legitimacy to it. Again, these are comparing the different gospel accounts. They, they drag him in before Pilate in the middle of the morning because they feel they need Roman sanction. They need Roman approval. They're governed by Rome. They say, you know we can't put someone to death on our own. You find him guilty. And Pilate interviews him and talks with him and says, I don't find any fault in this man. He's innocent as far as I can tell. But ultimately, under pressure from the people, he washes his hands. He said he's more trouble than he's worth. 
I can't have a riot. I might lose my job. Jesus is not rebelling against the Roman state as best I can tell. But you know what? He's not worth fighting over. And so he gives them over unjustly to them to crucify him. And now we're, we learn that Jesus was scourged. Now you need to understand what this was. It was taking, as we understand it, a rope, a kind of uh, a, a whip, and my understanding is there would be attached to it different pieces of hard substance like rock or bone. And they would lay him down and they would whip him on the back. You can imagine these whips whipping around his back and just turning his back into a bloodied mess. In fact, there is some suggestion now studying that these whippings, these scourgings could cut down to the bone of your back. You can just imagine the immense pain of 39 lashes being whipped across your back with these hard substances. And now notice, after Pilate has had him scourged, he's delivered him to be crucified. Look at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. Now, what is this place? This praetorium suggests it's a palace. It's an official residence of some kind. And it is speculated that this might have been Herod's official palace on the western side of the city. It might have been this official place called the Fortress Antonia on the, I believe, the northern part of the city. And so you see that they are bringing him into this official residence and they call together the whole band. The idea here is of a cohort of Roman soldiers. Now a cohort, it is said, was a tenth of a Roman legion. A Roman legion was about 6,000 men. So how much would a cohort be? We're going to do a little math this morning. 600. 600 soldiers. Now, do we know that all 600 of them came? Well, certainly the idea, I think, is at a minimum, everyone who was on duty, these are pilots, guards, everyone who was on duty in this band, they gather them all together. Now, these are soldiers, probably younger men. And I know we've got some veterans who attend Straygate, very grateful for your service. And you probably know better than the rest of us what soldiers can get in trouble with when they're bored? When they don't have anything to do? When they're looking for something to pass the time? And that's what's going on here. These soldiers look at Jesus just as sport, as a fun game, as a diversion from their boredom. They think it's hilarious that Jesus is on trial for being called the king of the Jews. Well, one, they probably think very little of the Jews. This backward religious people, they don't understand. And so now the people they have conquered, there's this great humor for them in that this guy is being tried for being their king? You mean the guy who's whipped and beaten? You mean the guy whose face is still battered and bruised from the chief leaders of the people striking him with their fists? Slapping him? Abusing him? This guy's their king? Ha! And so they decide to put on a little play, a little theater, with the Son of God. Look at this, friends, and, and just try to put yourself in this scene. How horrific. 
They clothed him with purple. Now, what does that mean? They clothed him with purple. What likely this means is that they took a soldier's tunic. Now, these tunics would, might have been a very, uh, a kind of red. In fact, one elsewhere in the Bible, it's referred to as something scarlet that they placed upon him. And there's no contradiction there. The likeliest scenario is that this was a rough Roman soldier's tunic that, was, that had initially been reddish or maybe a maroon, and it faded in the sun, and it still had a, a kind of purple in it. And these soldiers thought this was hilarious. What do kings wear? Kings wear purple robes. Here's something that looks purplish. Put that on him. This is hilarious. Then what did they do? They plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head. Now, don't miss this picture. They're play acting. What are they doing? Well, what did kings wear? What did Caesar wear? He would wear a laurel a kind of crown of greenery, maybe intermixed with gold, golden laurels. He would wear that on his head. And so they think it's hilarious. Here's the king of the Jews. How do we? Well, we put a purplish uh, soldier's tunic on him. We put not greenery, not this great greenery, but these thorns. And we're going to take these thorns and we're going to push it down into his skull. I mean, friends, we're talking sharp thorns. This was, as Spurgeon said, it was a crown of rubies, but not of jewels. The rubies were his blood that was streaming down from his skull as they placed this crown of thorns into his head. And notice in eight, verse 18, and they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. Again, this is some big joke to them. This guy doesn't look like a king. They're mocking him. Now, what would they say to Caesar? In Latin, they would say to Caesar, Ave Caesar. Hail Caesar. Can't you imagine these soldiers, perhaps in the same Latin now, Ave, King of the Jews. They're play acting as if it's Caesar. And it's all to them, a one big joke. And they smote him on the head. They struck him on the head with a reed. Now you say, what is a reed? The word reed here literally just means like a stick. A stick of some kind. And we learn from Matthew, do you know what they actually did? They gave him a stick like a scepter to hold in his hand. Again, this is just part of the, of the joke. He has a crown. He's got a purplish robe. They're bowing, they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews, ha ha. And then they got to give him a scepter, a royal scepter. And so they give him a stick. And then do you know what they did? They took the stick out of his hand and started beating him over the head with it. Ha ha, this is funny. And I just want you to think, you say beating him over the head, yeah, think about what that would have done to the crown of thorns. Driving those thorns into his head, driving them. Here, here's your scepter. Ha ha, never mind. Beat him over the head and they did spit upon him have you ever been spat upon can there be any greater insult than someone to spit in your face oh they thought this was hilarious this person who was to them basically subhuman and then what did they do and bowing their knees worshipped him worshipped him and when they had mocked him, that's how you could sum it up, they, they were mocking him, they were making fun of the Son of God. 
they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Friends, I just want to say against the darkest of these human tendencies, do you know, friends, those are human tendencies that even we can share? You look at them and say, well, how could they? Oh, no. Oh, no, I think we know. I think we know. If any of you have ever heard of the, of the Stanford prison experiments of the early 1970s, in 19, I think it was 71, a professor of psychology at Stanford University did a prison experiment in which he recruited male volunteers, and some of them were arrested literally placed under arrest by the uh, Palo Alto police, brought to Stanford University and placed in prison conditions, in, in detention. And some of the, of the volunteers were guards, and they were given control over these inmates and to decide how to treat them and how to keep order in this prison, and were basically given no restrictions. And do you know, by day six of a two-week study, the conditions had become so brutal in that study, they called it off said, it's done. Cancel it. These are men like you and me. These are, this, is hum, this is the human condition. And do you know this idea of blood sport? That's no different. Go to a UFC match and see what happens when blood sport happens. I'm, I'm scheduled to go to a hockey game tomorrow night. You know what, what, what cracks me up when I go to a hockey game, or at least what I notice? When, do the, when does the crowd get most excited at the hockey game? When the two guys drop their gloves. Oh, and everyone gets up, and they're ready to go. And you see that, that, that just human, his human condition. And here these soldiers, this, this looking at, in, at Jesus as a degraded kind of subhuman figure, laughing at him, mocking at him, and it's just entertainment. It's just spectacle. It's just something to pass the time. They don't think twice about it. This is a part of our humanity. It's the blackness of, of our collective character. This was the mockery that Jesus experienced. But notice, secondly, the misery that he experienced. The mockery that he experienced brought about the misery that he experienced. Will you notice verse 21? And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. You say, I, I don't get it. Well, in that day, our understanding is that a, a, a person who is being crucified would have to carry their cross. Now, this may have been only the cross beam. Because oftentimes, the, the vertical portion of the cross was actually just in the ground. And the prisoner would carry the cross, the, the, the horizontal beam that his hands would be nailed into. And, and I read in my study that this could be from anywhere from 75 pounds to a 125 pounds. So just if you imagine a, a cross beam weighing 100 pounds, and Jesus is bearing this, and he's carrying this cross, and they said they compelled one to carry it for him. Now you say, why would that be? Well, I, I bet our medical doctor, Mark, could tell us what happens when you lose blood in that amount. When the whipping and beating and scourging leaves your back utterly a tattered mess. When this blood streams down from your face. When you have been struck repeatedly and abused. 
it seems likely to me that Jesus simply was too weak to continue going. They wanted to go quicker. He wasn't doing it. And I want you to think about this. They find a man. Who is this man? His name is Simon. We know, very, we know next to nothing about him. We know that he's from Cyrene. That means that he was from modern-day Libya, Tripoli, in the north of Africa. He may have been a black man. He may have simply been a Jew who was living down there for commerce sake. We don't know much about him, but we know that he was just happening to come by. Happening. We'll get back to that. And here, now, they see him. He says, well, here, you carry the cross. They literally compelled him. They conscripted him. They made him. Hey, get over here. You carry his cross. And so now this man picks up this heavy beam and begins walking it, probably behind Jesus. Notice there's another indication of his suffering in verse 22. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha. They bring him. What were they doing before? They were leading him. Now what are they doing? They are bringing him. Friend, that could suggest that Jesus was so weak he was effectively needing to be carried. The physical suffering that he had experienced. Notice where they bring him. The place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. Now, different attempts have been made to identify what this place is outside of Jerusalem. And it could be that this place was called the place of a skull because it was the typical execution place. And I hate... I don't want to make you squeamish, but it could have just been the place literally of skulls. But there are others who believe that it was a hill outside of Jerusalem that had the appearance or the shape of a skull, if you looked at it from a perspective. Oh, that's the place of the skull. And that they led him to that hill, a hill we call Calvary. And that was the place where he would be hung. Now look at verse 23. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. You say, what's going on here? Well, it, it perhaps was a custom for people being crucified that people would give him what was effectively an anesthetic. They would give him wine and it would be mingled with this kind of with myrrh and it would dull his pain. And in fact, Proverbs 31 indicates this kind of thing. It says, give strong drink. Literally, it's the ideas of liquor. Give anesthetic unto him that is ready to perish, or him that is ready to die. And so perhaps this tradition arose, looking back to this verse of, are you about to die? We're going to make it a little less excruciating. We're going to give you anesthetic. And what did Jesus do? He received it not. Why? Well, do you recall what Jesus told his disciples previously? He said, the cup that my father has given me to drink, shall I not drink it? And here Jesus, when he has a chance to dull his pain, to deaden his senses, to make it a little more bearable, he says, no. I will go with a clear head, an utterly conscious mind of everything I am being tormented with now. Is that what you would have done? He was drinking the cup fully that his father had given him to drink. And now look at verse 24. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them what every man should take. Now pause there. What does that mean? You often see the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross and he's wearing a little loincloth to cover his modesty. 
well, that was a Jewish thing, but a Roman thing was typically that people would be crucified completely naked. The shame was the point. They wanted everyone walking by to look at him and see a man naked and ashamed and beaten and bloodied and dying a horrible death and say, don't be like him. You don't want to be a thief. That's what happens. You don't want to be a rebel against Rome. That's what happens. You don't want to be a murderer. That's what happens. They would literally put him in a public place, a public way where people were going. Their highways. It would be like in our, in, in our world, going down Highway 94 and putting someone up on capital punishment, killing him there so that all the cars going by in rush hour would say, I'm not going to do that. Well, we don't know. We don't know whether Jesus was fully naked or not, but we know they had his clothes. They took his clothes off him. And what are they doing? Can't you just see these soldiers? Who gets what? Who gets these clothes? They were casting lots. In our word today, we would say they would be throwing dice. Who gets what? Divide up the spoil. Here's a prisoner of no value and no worth. What's going on? Verse 25. And it was the third hour. And they crucified him. Now, don't miss this. Typically, the day would start, at, in their calculation, at 6 a.m. What would be the third hour? 9 a.m. Friends, all of this happening at 9 a.m.? Amazing to think. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand, and the other on his left. Here, the sinless Son of God placed in the middle of two thieves, as if to suggest that he is absolutely a criminal just like them. He is surrounded by wrongdoers, by those who are being executed for their own crimes. Friends, I, I, want, I want to say something right here and, 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 and put it in context for you. There is a tendency in our minds to really maximize the physical suffering that Jesus went through. And you see that if any of you uh, saw or heard of the movie The Passion of Christ by Mel Gibson, where, where those pictures of his sufferings are just maximized to the very gruesome extent. I just want to caution you on that because that's not what the Gospels do. The Gospels actually give you a very restrained sense of the physical suffering of Jesus. Oh, they paint it. They tell you. You know it. But, but it's more understanding the background than it really is in gruesome detail in, in, in focusing on everything you went through. Be careful not to take it out of proportion to what the Gospel takes it in. What's the main thing this account is focusing? Not his suffering, on his mockery. On the mockery he experienced. But it is just important to note what he did go through when he was crucified. This is what Cicero said. Cicero, a Roman author of around that time period, he said, let the very word cross be far removed from not only the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. It was, it was so torturous. It was so awful that Cicero was saying, I don't, I don't want my Roman citizens even looking at it. It's so horrifying. Because what happened? I mean, you probably know generally. Nails piercing into your wrist, perhaps severing your median nerve, causing all kinds of excruciating symptoms in your arms. Your feet being nailed to 
a kind of plate, your whole body hanging. Now, now, what was the purpose of this? The idea was that your body would hang and place immense pressure on your chest cavity, constricting your lungs, constricting your heart, making it very difficult to breathe. And so what would you have to do to breathe? You'd have to push up on your feet that had a stake through them. And in the process, you can imagine the back of Jesus on that rough wood going up and down, up and down as he struggles to breathe and then sinks back down and pushes himself back up and sinks back down. And ultimately, the exhaustion of this process would lead to the long, slow, agonizing death. Do you know what they would do to, to criminals when they decided, okay, they've, they've suffered enough, it's time to let them go. They'd go break their leg because then they could no longer force themselves up to breathe. They would sink in and ultimately die. This is perhaps the cruelest death that mankind has ever created. And it was not only for Jesus. There's records of perhaps tens of thousands of Jews who were crucified. He wasn't the only one. But he certainly took part of the, in this awful suffering. If you need any final reminder... You know the word excruciating? Oh, that's excruciating. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from the Latin word for cross. And it literally means, in a sense, out of the cross. Every time you say that is excruciating pain, you are giving testimony to what Jesus experienced on that cross. Amazing. This was misery in great, great degree. We see the mockery. We see the misery. But third, I want to ponder as we close here, the mystery. The mystery. Now, why do I say the mystery? Because everything so far has been about what they are doing to Jesus. They are putting the, scar, uh, the, the purple robe. They are putting the crown of thorns. They are beating him over the head with a stick. They are giving him wine mingled with myrrh. They are hanging him up on that cross. They are putting an, a, 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 his, his accusation over him. They are the ones mocking him. They are the ones torturing him. They are the ones belittling him. The focus is on the backdrop, on the blackness. It is on what they are doing to him. And Mark is doing this. He's doing this intentionally. Again, if you were to just read those 17 verses in your scripture again, maybe you would just underline the word they and how often it shows up. It's almost in every verse. Highlight it. They, 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 they. But what I want you to show is that Mark is doing something else too. He's dropping little breadcrumbs in this passage to show that actually he's most focused not on what they're doing, but he wants us to see what God is doing. And I just want you to say here, as just stepping back for one application, do you know it's so easy when we're going through hard times in our life and we're suffering and we're going through difficulty to focus on what they are doing? This is what he said. This is what she did. This is what they brought about. And we focus on that and that and that. And we never step back and say, wait, what's God doing now? He's at work right now. He's doing his own thing while they are doing their thing. 
And I just want to encourage you this morning. If, if you're being mistreated today, if, if you feel you are being unjustly taken advantage of, maybe God would have you shift your focus from them. Oh, it's, it may very well be very wrong what they're doing. But maybe God just wants you to look up to him and say, God, okay, what are you doing right now? And, and I just want us to look back at, at some of those breadcrumbs. Let's, because what, what I think Mark is encouraging us and directing us toward here is what God is saying about his son in the most miserable of his circumstances. What is God saying about Jesus in this passage? Let's look at the light that comes shining out of the darkness, out of the blackness. First of all, notice the testimony of what I'm going to call the substitute for Jesus. The substitute. Who was that? You remember that guy named Simon? That guy from North Africa, from Libya? He took that, that perhaps that side beam and carries it behind Jesus. He's a guy who just happens to be going along by the side of the road. They just happen to conscript him, to, to compel him to carry it. What do we know about him? Well, notice what Mark says. Who's this guy? He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, did you ever step back and think how weird that is? Well, Mark, who's Alexander and Rufus? He doesn't give you any indication. He doesn't say anything. Do you know what that means? He expects you to know. Or, or he expected his first century readers to know in Rome. Oh, obviously you guys know who Alexander and Rufus is. That was his dad. Can you believe it? Now you say, well, what does that mean? Well, there's something very interesting, breadcrumb. In Romans chapter 16, Paul is writing to the church at Rome. And do you know what he says? He says this, Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Rufus, that guy, and his mom, married to, is it Simon? I think so. I think Mark is a guy who is writing to predominantly Roman readers, and they would have known exactly who Alexander and Rufus were. Oh, yeah, the guys in the church. Oh, it's their dad who was just happening to come by the side of the road. And what comes of it? The salvation, apparently, of souls, perhaps even of Simon himself. What an, what an amazing thing. Mark just wants you to say, hey, God's working here too, don't you see? He's doing something. What else? What about the testimony of the sign? The testimony of the sign. Will you notice in verse 26? And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. Now, you say, what is this? Do you know what, friends, this is? This is irony. Do you know what irony is? Irony is a way we speak. Here, this, this is irony. It's irony if I were to say to you, it's toasty warm outside this morning. You'd say, oh, Peter's not actually saying it's warm. He's making a joke. Right? Because it's the, you're saying something that everyone's going to know it's the exact opposite of what you're saying. Or if you were to say, Peter, on this January 14th, you're looking younger than ever. That would also be irony given the particular day. But there's another form of irony. It's the irony of a literary device. It's, it's the kind of irony that authors use, that people who write plays or write movies use. It's the kind of thing when something's happening on the surface, but the writer knows that his readers or his watchers know that there's something else going on under the surface. 
they're in on the joke. They get it. He's writing something, but there's irony that something else is really going on, and he's winking at us like, you'll get it. Now, now, do you get the irony here? Jesus is on trial for being king of the Jews, and they put him up on a cross, and they write, we learn from another gospel account, in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, so everyone who knows coming across, what's on that sign? What is the crime that he is accused of? The king of the Jews. What's the irony? Is he the king of the Jews? Yes, he is. In fact, the Jews, the Jewish leaders were so upset by that, they went to Pilate and say, no, say, he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. No, he wanted to smash it in their faces. And so why did Jesus die? Because he actually was the king of the Jews. And while they are mocking him, and while they were belittling him, and while they were torturing him, the irony of it is that that's exactly who he was. Friends, why did they write a sign over his head called the King of the Jews? Because God was doing something when they were doing the worst evil the world had ever seen. God was doing his work. What about the testimony of the scripture? Will you notice this with me in verse 27? And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith... And he was numbered with the transgressors. The scripture was fulfilled. This was from Isaiah 53. It says, He has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The scripture was fulfilled, which was written hundreds of years before, that God's suffering servant, his Messiah, would be numbered just like a criminal. And now, on either side of him, it's fulfilled. He's treated like a criminal, just like God said. Why? Because in, ma in the middle of man's worst evil, in the blackest of nights, God was shining through the light, testifying to who that man on the cross really was. He's the Son of God. He's the King of the Jews. He's the chosen Messiah. What about the testimony of the scorners? Will you notice with me here in verse 29? Notice again. And they that passed by, again, going on that common highway, that common road, just everyone walking by, railed on him, literally insulted him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, like, ha, ha, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. To the soldiers, Jesus was a joke. He was a diversion. He was just a cheap form of entertainment. What about to these people passing by? I think he was a cautionary tale. Some of the people just... Kids, don't be like that guy. Look, you remember what he said, everyone? He said he was going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Well, we know what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the temple of his body. But remember that accusation even the chief priests were making. They said he was going to tear down our holy place, our temple. String them up! And so now this lie had passed among the people, and these people just walking by, shaking their heads at him. Ha ha, you're going to destroy our temple, huh? And yet you can't even come down from the cross. Look at you now. And onward they go, mocking him as they go. Friends, you say, what, what's the testimony of, of God in these words? 
Well, when Jesus said he was going to destroy this temple and raise it in three days, what was he talking about? His resurrection. And friend, three days later, on this side of the resurrection, we look back and said, they were giving testimony that he was telling the truth the whole time. Ha ha, Jesus. Why don't you save yourself? You can't destroy the temple and build it in three days. And it's as if, as if God is saying, watch me. Watch my son. He rose from the dead. It's irony. They're saying it. God is saying it through them. And we're looking back and seeing how it all came together. What about the other scorners? Look at verse 31. Likewise, also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let Christ, that's the Messiah, let the anointed one, let that Messiah, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him, the thieves on either side, reviled him, insulted him to his face. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that one of them later came to saving faith, hanging on that cross. You can read about that in the book of Luke. But I just want you to see again this mockery that Jesus has experienced, that Mark is, 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 has this irony for us. The chief leaders are calling him their Messiah. They're calling him their king. They're mocking him. And all the while, God's saying, they were telling the truth the whole time. But there's more than that. Notice this. What they're saying about him, he said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. And they're looking at him and saying, Jesus, if you would just come down from the cross, we would see and we would believe. Friends, we need to bring it to the point right here. What is God testifying to you this morning? He's testifying that like everyone who saw Jesus Christ be mocked, be tortured and be killed that day, you have a choice. Like many people today, you can see him as a joke, as a just diversion from the ordinary pursuits of your daily life. You won't take him very seriously. Like the people who pass him by, you can see a kind of cautionary tale. I don't have much to say about that Jesus guy hanging on that cross. I'm just going along with my daily life. You can be like the chief priests, his hostile adversaries, seeing him as a threat to your own life and your own position and standing. You can see him like those criminals did. We're bad people. This guy can't save bad, a bad guy like me. I'm pretty messed up. That guy is of no use. Or you can see him and believe. Believe what? Believe that he actually is the king. Believe something that the chief priest couldn't see. Notice what they said. He saved others. Himself, he, what? Cannot save. Is that true? Was that true? No. No, what they should have seen was that him, he saved others. Himself, he will not save. Because what the chief priest couldn't see, but what we can see on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of all the different fulfillment of scriptural prophecy, is that Jesus, when he died, he had to die. Because it was in your place that he was dying. 
Because when he was hanging on that cross, it was not that he could not come down. It was that he would not come down if he was to save you. And therefore, for those of us who see Jesus for whom God is shining this light into our faces, we look at him and we don't see misery as much as we see majesty. We say, you're right. That is the king that you're mistreating. That's right. He is the Messiah. That's right. He did save others. And that's right. Up on that cross, he was saving me. That's my king. That's my savior. That's my friend. Oh, dear ones, hear me this morning. Jesus is not held up in the Gospel of Mark as someone for you to be sympathetic about. Oh, what suffering he went through. Oh, what agony he experienced. He's being held up so that every single one of us in this room will bow down and say, Yes, you are my king. I give you myself completely in the face of that kind of love. And I ask you as we close this morning, friends, we've looked at Jesus' mockery today. We've looked at his misery today. But above it all, do you see the bright, gleaming testimony of God to his son? That he is the king. He is the chosen one. And he is inviting us to see him and to believe him.